I think we live in an age where we like to see the sights. Um, a lot of people will get in a car and drive to Colorado, or maybe they get on an airplane, fly to Manhattan, or you know Hawaii. Gene and I, we, we don't ever want to go to Hawaii. We watch Hawaii Five O, and somebody gets murdered there every week, and so we're not going there. Uh, most of us, we don't necessarily travel somewhere to sightsee. We just get on the internet and surf around, and uh, maybe watch YouTube videos. One of my favorite things to do is watch highlights of the X Games. Uh, I, I grew up kind of really enjoying Travis Pastrana, who is probably the baddest man on the face of the planet. First got to do like a backflip on a you know, motorcycle, which is really, really cool. Some of you, you're into skateboarding. I can't even stand up on a skateboard. But Tony Hawk is your man. I mean, he, he did some crazy things, including jumping over the Great Wall of China, which is like crazy on a skateboard. And then there's this guy, I want to show you this, Sebastian Stutner. He is a German pro surfer. He set the world record about a year ago on this wave. It's 115 feet high. Isn't that, I mean, that's crazy. We just like to watch stuff like that, and it, we, we go, wow, and maybe we get distracted from the mundane nature of life. You can turn that off. Nobody's listening to me anymore. Okay. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, but, you know, we like to see cool people doing cool things because we, we like to be entertained. We like to be distracted for a while. But even more interesting than those guys to me right now is Elon Musk. Now, I know people either love him or hate him. How many of y'all are kind of Elon Musk fans? Be honest. Okay, great. Isn't it, isn't it nice to have a South African come here to help save America from, you know, censorship? I mean, this is so weird how that's working out. Uh, but how many of y'all have driven by the uh, Gigafactory? Isn't that, I mean, that's incredible, you know. You, you can't help but rubberneck at the place. I mean, you're driving along, you look, and then like after you, you know, you've passed it about five minutes later, you, you look ahead and then you keep going like 80 miles an hour down the road. And you just think, that's amazing. And here's a picture of... The Gigafactory kind of set on one side next to the Burg Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world. Looks like kind of, kind of a toothpick. It's amazing, right? We, we do that. We, we like to watch cool things and think about cool people and, you know, rubberneck at it for a while and then just keep going down the road. Now, I'm afraid, though, even though that's how we're all bent, that's how I'm bent, that's how many of you are bent, I'm afraid that when it comes to Easter, there is this tendency... To, you know, be going down the road and then you rubberneck at the empty tomb and look back ahead, think about how Jesus is and you just keep going. And, and my, my encouragement to you is if that's your response to Easter, you're, you're probably missing something. Now the empty tomb is cool and Jesus is incredible. Uh, and we want to put him right up there with Travis Pastrana and Tony Hawk and Sebastian Stutner and maybe even Elon Musk, but if that's the extent to which we're taking it, I think we're kind of missing something. What, I, what I'm trying to say is when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't put it on YouTube and, and, and you know, you don't see clips of him going, hey, you guys think you're cool? Hold my wine. Check this out. You know, I mean, like, no. And in other words, Jesus, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he didn't do it so that on an annual basis for about an hour, we would just rubberneck at the empty tomb. We have to ask ourselves this question, since God doesn't just do things for our entertainment purposes only, what was he trying to accomplish? What, what did the resurrection do? What difference could it make, should it make in your life today and, you know, basically forever? 
I want to suggest something to you. Let me go at it like this. I, you know, as a pastor, I, I do, I don't know, would you call it crisis intervention, you know? Um, people will see me at funerals and weddings, and in between, it's because something's falling apart. And, you know, I see people that they get very angry and, and upset, and they're sad, and maybe they're bitter and resentful, and, and they've gone through some sort of loss. And, and beneath all of the different particular issues, which are just as unique as a fingerprint, beneath all of them, there is this commonality, and it's this thirst for newness. It's a thirst for resurrection. It's a thirst to start over. We, we have this, this thirst for new beginnings, and that's why, as Christians, most of the time, people really love verses like the one you find over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And we like to hear Jesus say things like he does in Revelation, where it's like, I, I am making everything or I'm making all things new. We like that because we're thirsty for newness. And sometimes the request comes along these lines. It, it's something like, hey, if I could just take back the last two years of middle school or high school or college, or if I could just clear away the rubble from my life, the mess I've made, and start over. If I could just take back the last 10 years of my marriage, the last five years of my job, or if only I could just take back those words, then I'd just be happy. And, and beneath all of it is this thirst for starting over. It's a thirst for newness. And, and if you have that thirst in some respect or another, I just want you to know that part of the Easter story, at least part of it, is if you think you're thirsty for new beginnings, you need to know God is even thirstier than you are for you to have what it is that you want. He's even thirstier than you are for you to have a new beginning. And that's kind of good news in and of itself. This last... Uh, Monday night, we started off our business meeting with a, a testimony. Uh, Bernard Briggs texted me and uh, Brad about, a, it was a week ago Tuesday, and he's a friend. And we get this text that his daughter, Lily, is in trouble now. We got a picture of Lily there. She is five years old. And she'd gotten this stomach virus, okay, rotavirus. And they took her to urgent care, released her. Then they took her to the emergency room, and then they released her again. Then they took her to the emergency room again and released her again. It was a really, really bad rotavirus. And then things got really bad when she couldn't walk, and she couldn't talk, and she couldn't even roll over in bed. And the expression just disappeared from her face. She looked like she was near death. And so we get this text while he's at the emergency room at St. David's down in Austin, and so we pray, and the church is praying. And when I talked to him, uh, I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday, he said, well, they're thinking she's going to have to be in the hospital at least another three weeks, and the outlook could have involved brain damage and death. It was really bad. It's the only the 24th case that they know of where a rotavirus moved from the gut to the head. It moved into her brain. And so it was bad. Well, on Monday night, he was here to say thank you for the prayers because uh, Lily had been released and she was at the prayer meeting walking and talking and well on her way to recovery. And it was very moving. And uh, the reason is 
that it was so moving was not just, hey, that's cool. She was near death and now she's not. And it wasn't just that she got what she wanted, which was revived health. It's that her dad and her mom got their deepest desires met and their deepest desires was that their daughter could have a fresh start. And it was moving. And I recognized in that moment, that's your father's heart toward you. You want a fresh start. You need a new beginning. You need forgiveness. You need a clean slate. This is why the father sent the son. This is what resurrection is all about. Jesus puts it like this over in John chapter 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, you, you're thirsty for new beginnings, a fresh start, a clean slate. Well, I can give all that to you. But here's the catch. You need to meet me for who I am. And Jesus lets us know, I didn't just get resurrected. I am the resurrection. I didn't just come back to life. I am the life. And so when you meet me for who I am, my life becomes your life. It's not enough to just simply intellectually apprehend a few things about Jesus, come to some doctrinal conclusions, or even accept that he's deity or believe his teachings and the miracles. You have to meet Jesus for who he is as the resurrection and the life. And that's why Jesus is so insistent when he rises from the dead that the apostles recognize this is not just a hallucination you're seeing. This is me. Here's who I am. And this is why you've got other writers in the New Testament like Peter saying things like this. Because of his great mercy, he has given us, like this is a thing that you receive, it's a gift, new birth, new life into a living hope, not just an understanding of an historic event. This is why you have over in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, the apostle Paul saying, if any, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you want newness, then you must meet the resurrected Lord by faith. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to meet the resurrected Lord by faith? What does it mean uh, to do anything by faith? Well, I want to help you to understand this. I want to un- help you to understand how you meet him by faith and really specifically what this means to meet Jesus by faith. And we're going to do that by looking at a rather famous resurrection passage. It's over in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And then we're going to look at verses 24 through 29. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. She saw that the stone had been removed from the from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, which, by the way, The other disciple that's being referred to here is John, who gives us the gospel of John. Okay. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple, John, who wrote the gospel, went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. So even as he's writing the Bible, John can't help but brag, yeah, I was faster. (laughs) Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
And then following him, Simon Peter also came, and Simon Peter follows him because, hey, I'm faster. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went and saw and believed, for they did not yet understand Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the foot. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they have taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Verse 24, But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the marks of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, without faith in the risen Christ, there's no newness, there's no vitality, there's no fresh beginning, there's no resurrection. And so... We need to understand what does it mean to have faith in the risen Christ and how is it that Christ gives us this faith. And right off the bat, I think you need to understand that faith in the risen Christ is a a gift. What's really odd in this passage is that, you know, Mary and Thomas and really John and Peter and all the rest, they've seen Jesus do all kinds of incredible things. They've seen Jesus walk on water raise the dead, heal the sick, feed a crowd with a kid's box lunch, on and on and on. They've seen him do incredible things. And they've heard him teach that the Son of Man would have to be raised on the third day. He talks about his resurrection on multiple occasions. In fact, he talks about his coming resurrection so many times that the enemies of Christ post the guard at the tomb. Why are the guards posted at the tomb? Because everybody knows Jesus has made this prediction that he's going to be raised on the third day. And they don't want somebody coming along and fooling everybody else by taking the body. So it's a a well-known fact that Jesus has said, I'll be raised on the third day. And Jesus has talked to the disciples for years and he's never broken a promise or told a lie. And, And so you would think that when Mary comes and she finds the empty tomb, she's going to say something like, maybe, hey, I thought when Jesus was talking about rising from the dead, he was exaggerating. Uh, I, I guess I need to rework that or rethink that. Or, hey, he pulled it off. I can't believe it. That's pretty cool. You know, that would have been a more reasonable response. What does Mary say? They've stolen the body. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. 
What? Thomas isn't any better. Thomas says, okay, I know what he said. I know what he's done. I've seen the miracles. I've heard the teachings. And you guys say he's risen from the dead. But I'm not going to believe until I see the holes in his hands and put my fingers there and put my my hand in the side where the spear was. I'm not going to. What? How can Thomas respond like this? How can Mary respond like this? You know, what is wrong with these people? Well, there's nothing really wrong with these people. It's just that faith in the risen Christ doesn't come easily. It's not something that you just manufacture. Okay, faith in the risen Christ is a gift. Jesus puts it like this elsewhere. He talks about no one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. Faith in the risen Christ is a gift. And now some of you are saying, okay, Ernest, I kind of agree with you because when it comes to faith, some people have faith and other people don't have faith. You either got it or you don't. For most people, when it comes to faith in God, belief in angels and the teachings of the Bible and miracles, some people just believe that so that it matters. And for most people, it doesn't matter. Some people have faith, other people don't. And no offense to Ernest, but, um, you know, I, you know, there, there are preachers and minister types and drug addicts. Y'all seem to have faith. But the rest of us people, we, we don't have so much faith. You're either, you know, left-handed or right-handed. Some people like haggis. Other people have taste buds. It's just the way, you know, it's just the way that it works. Um, some have it and some don't. If that's what you think I'm saying, you're mistaken, Okay. Faith is something that absolutely everybody has to exercise. And you do exercise faith all the time. You you can't know anything without faith. Let me go at it like this. Suppose, and I'm not pointing to anybody in the front rows over here, but let's just suppose that you're thinking, is he Mr. Right? She misses right. Is this the one? How do you know that that person is the one? Well, here's how it generally starts. You you start by basically thinking things through, gathering the data, looking at the evidence. You read the background report that your creepy parents had produced on that person. And then you you kind of get references from friends and feedback from people that you know and you love and you trust who trust and know and love you and then you do this little investigative thing called dating and you're collecting the data and then at a certain point you come to a reasonably concluded opinion this person's the one he he's Mr. Right or she's Mrs. Right now some of us later on we we discovered that it was, he's always Mr. Right. And, you know, that, but that's like a marriage seminar. That's not what we're talking about here. But you were kind of thinking, okay, I think this person's the right one. But how do you know? Because evidence and data can only bring you to a point of probability. How's the, what's the thing you have to do in order to know that they're the one? You have to get hitched. You tie the knot. You make yourself vulnerable. Now, here's the problem. In our society, and this is, I think, has probably always been the case, but I think it's as much the case now as it ever has been. What we want is certainty before we make ourselves vulnerable. But you're only certain after you've made yourself vulnerable. We don't want to commit until we know, but you can't know until you commit. 
This is how it is with, with everything. Your thinking, your reasoning, your data collection, the evidence that you're piling up, it just brings you to a point of probability. But always, knowledge involves commitment. Knowledge involves vulnerability. I was, uh, I've been reading uh, recently this book by J. Warner Wallace, who's going to be here four weeks from Friday. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. It's this book, Cold Case Christianity, and he talks about how for 35 years he was an atheist. This is his personal story. And, and then as a homicide detective, he started looking at the evidence for the resurrection, and he became a Christian because the evidence compelled him. And, and in this book, he, he talks about this friend of his, Mark Walker, who was an officer of the law. And Mark pulled over this person named Jason. I can't remember the last name. But he pulls over this guy named Jason because he's swerving all over the road. It looks like he's drunk driving. Mark gets him out, is suspicious that maybe he's carrying a piece. And as Mark starts patting this guy down, the guy, knowing if he, if he finds out I'm carrying a weapon, I'm going back to prison because he had a long record and he, he was out on parole. He says, if I get caught, I'm going back to prison. So before Mark could pat to where the gun was, Jason pulls out the gun, turns around, points it at Mark, and Mark knows he's going to get off the first shot before I do. Now, Mark was wearing a bulletproof vest. And he went through all sorts of training to reinforce this belief that the vest works, that it could stop a bullet, even a bullet from a forty-five. Uh, and they've done all sorts of training and studies, but it's a big difference between believing that and believing in. And in that moment, when Jason pulled the gun, Mark's thinking, he's going to get the first shot off, but I can get the second. And so in that moment, he had to decide, am I going to believe in what I've come to conclude or not? He believed in it, took the first bullet, was able to deliver the second bullet appropriately, and he saved his own life because he chose to believe in what he had to this point only believed about. You have to move from belief that to belief in. How do you do that? You put your weight down. You trust. You make yourself vulnerable. Always. Knowledge. True knowledge involves faith. So now some of you are saying, oh, wait a second, Ernest, if you're saying that all of us exercise faith all the time, then why in the world would you say that belief in the risen Christ is a gift? Faith in the risen Christ is a gift. Here's why. And I'll go ahead and put up, put up the next slide. The greater the focal point of faith, the more vulnerable you have to make yourself in order to know that focal point. Let, let me explain what I mean. It doesn't require a whole lot of vulnerability for you to trust the chair or the pew that you're sitting on. Okay, yeah, yeah, you had to put your faith, your, your faith in it. You, you saw other people sat in it. You sat down. You put your weight down. But, you know, if you fall through, the floor, floor is just like two feet below. No big deal. That's one thing, but it's quite another to hire a person who's going to run half your company. And it's quite another thing over hiring somebody who's going to run half your company to submitting yourself to this person or marrying this person, tying the knot till death do you part. Always, in order to know some subject or object or focal point, you make yourself vulnerable. But the greater the focal point, the greater the vulnerability. Now, here's the question. How in the world are you going to know if Christ is who he says he is? I mean, he does make some pretty outrageous claims. 
And all of history seems to revolve around this person, and there is no other religion in the world that ties all of their beliefs into an historic event that can either be demonstrated or undermined. How are you going to know if Jesus is who he says he is? Because you, you do recognize that when you make a decision, there are implications to the positive or the negative. You're either going to be in the light or the dark, or you're going to be in the light or the dark for a long time. How, how can you know? I mean, if you're going to know the absolute Jesus, God in the flesh, then that's going to require absolute commitment, which means absolute vulnerability which does not come easily. That's the real kicker. That's the huge hurdle, isn't it? So when it comes to faith in the risen Christ, how in the world could we possibly get this? Because I can't just manufacture that. Even the disciples and Mary couldn't just manufacture that with immediacy. How does Jesus Christ give us that faith? Well, there's two things, and it's actually really, really simple and so plain. Jesus gives us the gift of faith through incredibly strong reasons and by making plain the extent of his love for you and me. Both of those things run together. Okay, let's go at these one at a time. Jesus gives a strong belief in him, strong reasons for belief. Again, belief doesn't stop at a convinced mind, but it always starts there. It should start there. That's why there's reasonable faith and there's unreasonable faith. But with the, with regards to Christianity, there's always this invitation for the faith to be reasonable. In fact, I will have to say, I I went to another church one time, and I'm not going to tell you what it was or what denomination. This, that's not my point here. Uh, but I do remember going to a place, and they were sort of giving a tour, and they said, close your eyes. Set your mind aside. How do you feel? Just believe. And I thought, this is a cult. I'm out of here. No, really, that's crazy. No, really? The Bible never encourages somebody to come to faith by set your mind aside. Close your eyes. Close your mind. How do you feel? Like, what? That's a cult. That's not Christianity. With In Christianity, whether we're talking about Jesus or John or... Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, it's always think, look more carefully, look more closely. Don't close your eyes. Don't, don't turn off your brain. That's never encouraged in the scripture. You see that here. here here's, here's John and Peter. They go running into the tomb. The, the tomb is empty. They, they walk in and then they see the grave clothes and they see the little face covering. It's all folded up there. And it looks like, well, that's where Jesus' body is supposed to be, but everything's all folded up nice and neat. And it says that they saw, and the word that's used for saw or see or to look is this Greek word theoreo. It's the word from which we get theorize or theory. They're seeing, but they're not just seeing on a superficial level. They're, they're seeing, they're thinking things through. Do you see what's going on? They, they see the, the grave clothes laid out there and they're going, okay, wait a second. If these were friends that stole the body of Jesus, which they wouldn't have been friends because we're his friends and we would have known this, but if friends came and took the body, why did they take him out naked? Because that would have been a complete desecration of the body. Friends wouldn't do that. And yet, the clothes are there all nice and neat and, if in it, and here's the face napkin just laid out and it looks like that's right where he was. And if these are enemies who were desecrating the body, they wouldn't have left everything all folded up like this. And besides that, the enemies didn't want the body to be gone because that would kind of lend credibility to 
Christianity. And so they're working through all of this on the basis of what they're seeing, saying this doesn't fit friends taking the body and it doesn't fit enemies taking the body. Something else has gone on. They're seeing. And one of the things that John in particular wants you to see and me to see in John chapter 20 is all of these eyewitness accounts and testimonies giving validity to the fact that Jesus Christ is, in fact, risen from the dead. He's reasoning with the people who are reading this. You read this a little bit later in John chapter 20 towards the end of that chapter. John says this. He says, these are written. What's these refer to? All the words in the book of John? No. He's talking about the eyewitness accounts that he's just communicated here in John chapter 20. He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Belief starts with a convinced mind. How is it that a person comes to faith? Well, here's what you you do. It's kind of normal. You maybe read the New Testament. You read the Gospel of John. You ask a few friends. You do some investigating. You think about the historicity of the resurrection. You just, you see. And when you start looking, and then you look closer, and you theoreo for a while, it becomes rather clear he's risen from the dead. Jesus does this with Peter and John, who seem to be kind of thinkers. And then here's Mary, and she's maybe a little bit more intuitive a little bit more, you know, relational, and he calls her name, and then she believes. And and then Thomas is kind of, you know, reputably the doubter, and Jesus offers, you know, touch and feel that I'm, you know, flesh and blood. And and then there's Peter again, who's kind of prideful, and he gets what he needs, which is a big fat humility pill, and it enables him to believe. Everybody gets what it is that they need in order to believe, and they get it from Jesus. So if you have not yet come to conclude my encouragement to you is you keep looking. Keep thinking. Feoreo on this stuff for a while. I had mentioned J. Warner Wallace coming here. J. Warner Wallace is like one of the top five uh, Christian thinkers, writers, uh, influencers in America. He's going to be here four weeks from Friday in, in this room. And he wrote this book, Cold Case Christianity. And here's somebody who wasn't, who wasn't just kind of a disbeliever. He was an avid atheist and a homicide detective. And he just applied all of these rules of forensic investigation to the resurrection. And he came to the conclusion, he's risen from the dead. It's the only thing that really fits the facts of the case. If you haven't seen yet that Jesus is the Son of God, here's my encouragement. Don't set your mind aside. Don't try to just manufacture faith. Look. Theoreo for a while. He gives you what you need. Now, we we could go on about this all the time, but here's one of my favorite things that I came across. It was years ago. Chuck Colson, who's, you know, gone on to be with the Lord a long time ago, he was an avid atheist, and he was also an assistant to President Nixon, and he went to prison because of his involvement in Watergate. But he became a believer, and he said that people would frequently ask him, okay, so why are you a Christian? And he would would point to the eyewitness accounts. He would say, look at all the eyewitness accounts that came from the disciples in the 500. And people would ask him, well, how do you know that they're not lying? How do you know they're not making things up or that they're perpetrating a hoax? And, And he said, well, Watergate. He said, think about Watergate. In the Watergate scandal, you had this cover-up perpetuated by the closest aides to President Nixon. 
And, uh, and they were fiercely loyal to the president. And yet, one day, John Dean turned state's evidence, and that is he testified against Richard Nixon. And this was just two weeks after he had informed President Nixon of what was really going on. Just two weeks. And then a bunch of other people jumped ship. And John Dean said the reason that he turned against Nixon was to save his own skin, his words. Then everybody else started jumping ship. Now, this is just two weeks. None of these guys had their lives on the line. All they were risking was political embarrassment, maybe some prison time, and, and everybody jumped ship in two weeks. Who are the disciples? Who are the apostles? Who are these 500 eyewitnesses? They're powerless people. They're peasants. And, and, and yet they maintain to their dying breath that they had actually physically, literally seen Jesus alive from the dead. And what is it that they were risking? It wasn't embarrassment or political disgrace. They get beheaded, stoned to death, crucified. Now, you would think that at some point, if this was just a facade or a hoax, somebody at some point is going to testify, hey, we made this up. They're going to make a deal with the authorities. Never happened. Now, people will give up their lives and maybe give up their families in order to maintain something they believe to be the truth. But nobody ever gives up their lives and certainly nobody ever gives up their families for a lie knowing it to be a lie. One of the things that the Watergate scandal demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt is what most of us deep down inside know, and that is people will, in order to save their necks, they will turn on people, even if they're at the height of their political power and influence, they will turn on people to whom they profess deep and abiding loyalty. But none of the disciples ever changed their story because they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And even if you were to change your story, knowing changing your story was a lie in order to save your own neck, they couldn't do that because here's Jesus. If he's risen from the dead, then I'm not changing my story to save my neck because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the resurrection and the life. Look. See. That's how Jesus gives people faith. He gives us very strong reasons to believe. The other thing, though, is he clearly shows us the extent of his love. Let's go back to Thomas. I think this is kind of interesting. Let me read this again. Thomas said to them, If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the marks of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Then later, a week later, Jesus appears. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Now, what's interesting here is we don't have any record of Thomas actually putting his fingers into the hands or his hand into Jesus' side where the spear was. Maybe that happened. You know what I think happened? I think Thomas sees the wounded Christ and he comes face to face with all that he needed. Maybe he thought he needed a little bit more reason to believe. But I think in that moment, what Thomas needed was to understand the extent of the love of Jesus for him. No one has a greater love than this, that they lay down their life for a friend. And here, Thomas comes face to face with Jesus. And we think about this all Easter week, right? We think about the passion of the Christ and we think about him dying on the cross, which is the worst way. And we 
We think about him yielding to suffering and death and separation from the Father. But why does he do all of this? Well, he does it for you and for me because, again, your Heavenly Father is so passionate that you know newness and life and forgiveness and resurrection that he's willing to send the Son and the Son is so passionate that you have what it is that you want. He willingly suffered and died on your behalf. When you see the reasons he gives for you to believe and then when you see the extent of his love, at some point it breaks you in the best way. Now, for some of you, you're at that point. You've seen enough. Well, my encouragement is, okay, receive the gift of faith. For some of you, you need to see more. Well, then keep looking. Okay? There's never an encouragement for anyone to manufacture faith or fake it till you make it. Faith is a gift. But it's a gift that Jesus gives to you and to me in a very simple way, compelling reasons and an unassailable, compelling love that's available to you. And if you're ready to receive the gift of faith, here's what will happen next for you. You receive his life. You receive forgiveness. You receive newness. You receive what deep down inside you most desperately want and the father is desperate for you to receive it let's bow for a word of prayer okay every eye closed every head bowed nobody looking around i'm not tricking anybody into do something else and signing a card or walking an aisle this is just what it is if you're here this morning and you'd say you know i i'm ready to take the next step and I know it's more than sitting in a chair or hiring somebody or even marriage and I want to yield to the one who yielded for me I'm just going to invite you to simply pray right where you are okay this is just, just what it is you might just say to God God I know that that I've, I've sinned I've fallen short I need a savior and I know it's Jesus and I know he came and of his own free will because he is the resurrection and the life. He laid down his life for me that I would know forgiveness and a relationship with, with God forever. So, Lord, I, I just want to pray now, confessing my sin and turning to Jesus as Savior and Lord. I trust him. Thank you, God, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.